It's two o'clock in the morning of the 24th of September, 1940, on the fortress of Gibraltar. It may be situated at the southernmost tip of Spain, but it's the British who have been control of this territory for centuries. The vitality of the small corner of the British Empire has dramatically increased in recent months. France has only recently capitulated to the oncoming German Blitzkrieg in a campaign which lasted only six short weeks. This left Britain, along with its dominions, to fight alone against Hitler's forces. Consequently, Gibraltar's safety, upon which depended the success of Allied strategy in the Mediterranean, had been called into question. As if to illustrate this point, the shriek of air raid sirens begin to blare across the surrounding area. Spotters have detected a wave of approximately 60 enemy bombers headed straight for the fortified harbour. The Gibraltar Defence Force run to assume their positions and await the coming attack, as the drone of the bombers' engines become ever louder. Aiming their anti-aircraft weaponry skywards, they open fire. As the planes fly overhead, they drop their payload. The bombs whistle as they fall and detonate with shocking force, sending tremors through the earth. Once the planes hit their targets, they circle back around and return to their base. Soon, the danger has passed, but this pause is only temporary. This attack, conducted by French bombers on behalf of the Vichy regime, would be followed up the next day by a second wave. It causes heavy damage to the fortress and starts fires that spread into the town itself. Gibraltar would be attacked like this several times during the war, but none were able to knock the allies off this precarious pedestal of theirs. This might have been different, however, had a certain power joined the war and tipped the balance in the Axis's favour. The interwar period was a time of increasing authoritarian militarism across the world. Fascist ideologies had found support in countries like Nazi Germany, Fascist Italy and Imperial Japan. These three are the most prominent far-right regimes of this period, and were known as the Axis powers. However, there was another country which had similar ideological leanings to the Axis that didn't get involved in the conflict. I am, of course, talking about Spain, under the rule of General Francisco Franco. After launching a coup d'etat against the government, which devolved into a vicious civil war, Franco and his new phalangist regime espoused much of the same rhetoric that Hitler and Mussolini engaged with in their own countries. After 1939, Allied fears that the Spanish would throw in their lot with their Axis pals by declaring war on Britain and France were not unwarranted. However, they never materialised. Spain stayed out of the war, the Axis went on to lose, and Franco remained the leader of Spain for another 30 years. But what if things didn't pan out this way? What would an alternate timeline in which Franco joined forces with Hitler and brought Spain into the war look like? Would it have changed its outcome? How different would Spain and the rest of Europe look had this happened? All these questions and more 
will be explored in the following episode. My name's Tom DeLaghi, and you're listening to What If Spain Joined the Axis in another episode of This Is Not History. Before we can explore an alternate timeline in which Spain joined in World War II, let's talk a bit about recent Spanish history for some background context on this scenario. For centuries, Spain had been a global empire, one of the first to ever exist, with territories spreading from the Italian peninsula all the way over to the American continent. By the late 19th century, however, Spain was very much a former great power in decline. The Spanish-American War of 1898 resulted in Cuba and the Philippines, their last significant colonial holdings, being ripped from their clutches, leaving Spain battered and humiliated by their defeat. The following decades weren't much better for the country either. As the economy stagnated and its population remained relatively impoverished compared to its European neighbours, political instability soon became the norm in Spain. The country was a hotbed of extremist movements, with anarchists, fascists and communists all seeking to impose their agendas in this period. The government struggled to crush regional revolts in Catalonia, fell briefly under military dictatorship, which was then soon followed by a creation of a second Spanish Republic. This constant barrage of national crises would eventually reach its peak with the outbreak of the Spanish Civil War in 1936. In July of that year, a group of military generals, dissatisfied with the Republic and afraid of an imminent communist takeover of the country, declared an open revolt against the left-leaning government. Referred to as the Nationalists, a united front formed amongst a range of right-wing Spaniards. Conservatives, monarchists, fascists and Catholic fundamentalists all joined together, seeking to re-establish their position of hegemony in the country's affairs. As the war progressed, a rising star in the military, one General Francisco Franco, became the figurehead of the movement. Franco and the Nationalists conducted the war with extremely high levels of brutality, seeing this as a cleansing of Spanish society of all undesirables. While this was effective in removing seditious elements from the country, it resulted in high levels of destruction which Spain would struggle to recover from in the years after. Franco was given hefty amounts of aid from outside powers friendly to his cause in order to achieve his victory. Nazi Germany sent air and armoured units to help in the fighting, whilst fascist Italy sent material aid and 50,000 men to fight on the front line. One of the most infamous incidents involving foreign expeditionaries was the famous bombing of Guernica, a small republican-held town in northern Spain by German bombers. The death toll for civilians is disputed, but most agree that around 300 people died. It was among some of the first aerial bombardments of an unarmed civilian population in warfare. 
many see what happened in Guernica as a prelude to what cities like London, Rotterdam and Berlin would endure not long after. The generous amount of aid given to the nationalists proved to be the final nail in the coffin for the ailing Republican government. And so, after almost three years and half a million dead, the Spanish Civil War ended with the dissolution of the Republic and the ascendancy of Franco to power. With the end of one conflict came the beginning of an even larger one. In September, Germany invades Poland. The British and French declare war. Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. The war spreads to other countries. Germany invades Denmark and Norway, capitulating them both quickly. Hitler then turns his attention west and invades the Low Countries of the Netherlands, Belgium and Luxembourg. They surround the British at Dunkirk, who just about managed to escape. And in a matter of weeks, they defeat the French. At the time of the war's outbreak, Spain's official policy is one of neutrality, but with the speedy defeat of Spain's neighbour to the north in June 1940, a French puppet regime is established in the town of Vichy. This opens up the possibility for greater cooperation between Spain and the Axis. During this time, Franco flirted with the idea of joining them and openly favoured their efforts in the war. Meetings were soon set up, aiming to create some sort of alliance. Hitler sent his supposed expert on Spanish affairs, Admiral Wilhelm Canaris, chief of the German military intelligence service, as a special envoy to Madrid. His meetings with the general came to no avail, however, as Franco's requests were far and beyond what the Führer was willing to give him. The Spanish stated that they would not consider joining the faction until German troops had made a successful landing on the British Isles. This was because Spain relied heavily on British exports of wheat and oil and refused to switch suppliers until they were certain the Germans had defeated them. They also demanded the handover of certain Vichy French territories in North Africa in return for their efforts. This price seemed outrageous to the Germans, who thought the armed forces and industrial capability of the country to be rather weak. From this initial encounter with Canaris onwards, Spanish-German cooperation would stagnate as neither side would give in to the other's demands. This moment can be identified as the closest the two parties ever came to hashing out an agreement leading to Spain joining the war. After this, at times, the relationship even became tense as Hitler pressed more insistently for Spanish cooperation in a proposed joint invasion of British-owned Gibraltar via the mainland. This plan was never implemented, however, 
as Franco stood by his need for an occupation of the British Isles before they would formally join the Axis. And so, the war would continue without Spain. The air battle above the skies of Britain was a defeat for Hitler, who shelved his proposed plan to invade the UK. British and Commonwealth forces would fight the Axis in North Africa, the Middle East and Greece, until both the Soviet Union and the United States were brought into the war in 1941. While the countries involved in the fighting saw destruction on a scale never before seen wreak havoc across the world, the Spanish successfully navigated their path of neutrality, slowly withdrawing their vocal support for the Axis in order to be viewed more favourably by the victorious powers. The dawn of the ideological Cold War between the USA and USSR was an opportunity Franco took to improve his relations with the West, as they would be united in their anti-communist stance. In 1959, US President Dwight Eisenhower paid a state visit to Madrid. This is the moment many believe that Franco managed to rehabilitate his image, going from dangerous military dictator to a respectable, if tough, anti-communist leader who was friendly to the West. General Francisco Franco would remain the country's leader until his death in 1975, after which Spain would transition to a democracy. The nature of his legacy remains a complicated and controversial one. Some see him as the man who brought an end to decades of political turmoil restoring traditional Spanish values to the forefront of society while saving his country from the scourge of world war. Others see him as a brutal despot who plunged his nation into civil war, clawed his way to power and violently persecuted all those who were deemed a threat to the fascistic system he was building. But what if this hadn't happened? What if Franco and Hitler entered into an agreement that brought Spain into World War II. So as far as I can tell, there are numerous things that would need to be different to allow this alternate history scenario to happen, some of which I've already touched on. However, talking about industrial capabilities and over-reliance on trade can become pretty dry. I think a more interesting element to delve into revolves around one man. I've already talked about how Hitler sent Admiral Wilhelm Canaris as a special envoy to convince Franco to join them against the Allies. However, what I neglected to mention up until now was that unbeknownst to the Fuhrer, Canaris was secretly working to undermine the Nazi war effort. While initially supportive of the Nazi regime, his opposition began in earnest whilst visiting bombed out cities during the early years of the war. So, when Canaris visited Spain, he made Germany's position seem weaker than it actually was, knowing that Franco would ask for more concessions if he thought he could get away with it. This in turn made negotiations harder, as neither side wanted to give in to the other's demands. If Hitler had chosen another advisor to send to Madrid over Canaris, Spain may have been more likely to enter the fray. Now. Is this the most believable point of divergence for our scenario? Probably not. As I say, there were numerous things that impacted the outcome of the talks. But I think it makes for a more interesting story this way. 
So, what would happen? Canaris isn't sent to Spain, and an envoy more loyal to the Nazi cause is appointed by the Fuhrer instead. In the days and weeks immediately following the divergence, Franco is more open to the proposition, and in October 1940, they agree on official Spanish admission into the Axis powers by early 1941. The Germans opt to focus their efforts in taking down Britain's primary naval base in the Mediterranean, rather than a direct assault on their island. This means that the Battle of Britain is a far smaller affair than in our timeline. Preparations for this plan to take Gibraltar, codenamed Operation Felix, would begin quickly and would be ready to execute by January 1941. These preparations would not go entirely unnoticed by the British, who were already paranoid of a Spanish invasion of Gibraltar. They'd bolster their defences with what little resources they could spare. Eventually, the day would arrive. At some point around January 1941, Spain declares war on Britain and its allies. Mere moments after the announcement is made, the battle for Gibraltar would begin. Spanish soldiers, supported by German units, would begin to attack the entrenched British positions with the support of artillery and aerial bombardments by the German Air Force. Furious dogfights would commence in the skies of southern Spain between the RAF and the Luftwaffe. The British desperately tried to keep bombers away from their defences and their sea lanes. The Royal Navy attempt to keep the garrison on the fortress supplied, but are under constant attack by German and Italian submarines. Days go by, and the battle reaches a brutal intensity. This is partly due to the fact that Gibraltar was of vital importance to Allied strategy, but also many of the soldiers fighting for the Allies would themselves be from Gibraltar. Their whole lives had been spent there. They'd be defending their schools, their churches, their very homes. This prompts the defending soldiers to fight harder and longer after all hope is lost, ensuring the enemy pay dearly for every inch of territory they take. Close quarters gunfights would take place street by street, house by house. As the defenders become overwhelmed by Franco's forces, small pockets would stubbornly hold out within the tunnels of the fortified rock. Despite their efforts, most of the outnumbered defenders are slowly driven out, back towards the sea. It would take a couple of weeks for the peninsula to fall, with unusually high casualty rates by Western standards. The news of Gibraltar's collapse would reach London and is a major blow to Allied morale. But it doesn't bring the UK any closer to the negotiating table as the Axis hoped. The fall of Gibraltar is without a doubt the most immediate and significant impact of Spain joining the war. This would all happen within the first weeks of 1941. The months following the disaster would see the geostrategic situation of the Allies deteriorating even further. The loss of Gibraltar makes it almost impossible for the Royal Navy to operate in the Mediterranean. It effectively splits the Empire in half, 
forcing British convoys to travel the entire coast of Africa through the Suez Canal to get their supplies to where they need to go. This causes huge issues for British and Commonwealth forces fighting in Egypt against Italian, German and some newly arrived Spanish troops. It weakens other strongholds in the Mediterranean as well. Places like Malta are more at risk of falling to the Italians now without supplies coming from Gibraltar. If the Axis could create enough disruption to Allied supply convoys, an opportunity might present itself to Erwin Rommel's Africa Corps to push on through Egypt and capture the Suez Canal. If, and that's a big if, this were to happen, this would effectively render the North African campaign lost to the Allies. Mussolini's dream to turn the Mediterranean into an Italian lake would finally be realised. I can't be sure that this would happen, but if it did, it would most definitely be the worst case scenario for the Allies. Despite the mounting setbacks against the Allies, I don't think all would be lost. I mean, it's not like the Axis could keep this up forever. The thing is about this alternate scenario is that even if Canaris doesn't go to Spain, and even if they join the Axis, and even if Gibraltar falls, all the concerns Franco had about entering the war are still a reality. First of all, they would see trade with Britain and probably the United States as well completely cease, with Germany having to make up for the losses where they could. This is at a time where their material insufficiencies were just beginning to make themselves known already. Spain's military capabilities were in pretty dire straits as well. While it did have tons of veterans loyal to the state after the civil war, its army would be technologically inferior to its enemies, and that's what makes the difference between victory and defeat during this period. Spain would rely heavily on outside help for weaponry, and would need Germany to help garrison their ports to defend against naval invasions. Speaking of naval invasions, the threat of the Royal Navy would also be a major issue. Spain's navy was negligible and could do nothing to stop the Allies menacing their coastline and overseas trade routes. Franco had low expectations that his troops in the Canary Islands or Spanish Morocco could withstand a British attack. Continuing on through 1941, Germany's conquests of Yugoslavia and Greece would still occur the same as in our timeline. These would be precursors to the main event, the invasion of the Soviet Union. Operation Barbarossa would still be a major turning point in the war, still the catastrophic nightmare of human pain and suffering that it was in our timeline. It would start sucking up more men and supplies than the Axis could replace them with, slowly chipping away at their strength. This coupled with the small matter of the United States of America joining the war in December, puts the Axis in a bit of a bad spot, and Spain along with them. As 1942 rolls around, the Eastern Front would rage on. This means the Spanish mainland becomes less and less protected from attack by sea, as the better armed German troops are redirected to the occupied territories to hold back the Red Army. The main development this year on the Spanish home front would be the increase in air raids by Allied aircraft. With their country not having a chance to rebuild after their civil war, 
There aren't really any large Spanish industrial sectors to take out like in Germany. This means that the objective of these area bombings would be to target the country's communication centres and cities where the regime's political power would be projected, which also happen to be population centres. Cities like Madrid, Seville and Cadiz would suffer from regular bombings, with the Americans paying visits by day and the British by night. Spain had no air force to speak of, and the Luftwaffe would prioritise defending the skies of Germany from similar bombing runs, leaving Spain almost undefended against air attacks. I think the Spanish population would slowly be ground down by years of war and hardship, many of them not even being supporters of Franco and the Nationalists. Attitudes begin to turn against the leadership of the country. By late 1942, Overseas Spanish territories like the Canary Islands would indeed fall as Franco feared they would. Not only that, but Spanish ports along the Atlantic coast would see raids from Allied Special Forces who'd commit acts of sabotage, capturing unprepared Spanish troops as prisoners of war, as well as working in tandem with elements of Spanish resistance movements. Overall, the situation in Spain is deteriorating rapidly. A quick jump to around the middle of 1943. I think the Allies would invade Morocco and Algeria in a coordinated attempt to reopen the Mediterranean, with the Anglo-Americans, aided by free French forces, pushing eastwards and the British and Commonwealth forces marching west, the Axis would slowly but irrevocably be beaten back across Africa. The loss of Spanish holdings in Morocco causes rising tension and fear of invasion amongst the public in Spain, further destabilising Franco's regime. In our timeline, by 1943, Mussolini's Italy was seen as the soft underbelly of Europe and identified as the most desirable path for a direct invasion of occupied Europe. However, in this alternate timeline, it's likely that the combined chiefs of staff would turn their attention to an even weaker power than Italy. Soon, plans begin to be drawn up for the retaking of Gibraltar and the invasion of the Spanish mainland. By late 1943, this invasion would begin. The Allies would seek to exploit Spain's long coastlines by landing troops along wide fronts so as to overwhelm their defences. I think two separate landings would take place, one in the north and one in the south. The first would set off from Britain and land in the northwest, aiming to capture important towns and ports. This first landing would divert the bulk of enemy forces to deal with the threat while the second landing would set off from French North Africa, capturing southern ports like Cadiz and making a thrust to cut off Spanish troops in Gibraltar. Once this is completed, British soldiers would mass on the Spanish garrison on the fortress. Now it would be their turn to face an overwhelming assault on the peninsula. The Second Battle of Gibraltar would result in a Spanish surrender and the liberation of the peninsula from the Axis powers, reopening the Mediterranean entirely to the Allies for the first time in two years. Franco's army wouldn't be equipped to deal with this two-front attack, and with Germany desperately fighting for its life against the Soviets, 
the Allies would spread across the country rapidly. Spanish resistance groups, made up of supporters of the Old Republic, Communists, Democrats, Basque Nationalists and Anarchists, would sow further chaos for Franco's forces by committing acts of sabotage and assassinations. We'd see Spanish units surrendering in large numbers due to the hopelessness of their situation. The Allied armies would move to link up with each other and encircle the capital, Madrid. By this point, political support for Franco's regime would crumble entirely. The remnants of the government that would still support him would flee. I believe Franco himself, him being a military man, would elect to stay in Madrid and either be captured or killed by Allied forces. Regardless of the outcome for Franco, he's out of the picture. The Allies pushed north to the French border along the Pyrenees Mountains, where they would halt their advance around the middle of 1944. Hitler would send what little soldiers he could to hold them there, but there would be no further advances through the mountains. Due to the invasion of Spain, the Normandy landings would take place slightly later than in real life, in the later half of 1944. Except for these major campaigns being pushed a few months down the line, the war finishes roughly the same way. The Soviets still take Berlin, Hitler still shoots himself in his bunker, and the Second World War in Europe would end, just slightly later, in early 1946. In the post-war period, Spain would emerge as a completely broken nation. The end of the Second World War would come less as a celebratory event for the people of Spain and more of a fate that they would resign themselves to. The state of the nation would be one of complete and utter ruin. From the outbreak of the Civil War in 1936 to the end of the war in Europe, there would have been precious few months of peace in a decade of near-constant warfare. This period would come to be known as Los Diez Anos de Guerra, the Ten Years of War, the darkest period in Spain's long history. Living standards in post-war Spain would be poor, homelessness is a major issue, and the country's infrastructure would be completely reduced to rubble. There would be few families who had not lost loved ones in this tumultuous decade. Millions of kids would be left orphaned after the adult male population would have been drafted and sent to die on the front lines. Spain would be occupied by the victorious powers, although not as harshly as in Germany, as the Spanish would have capitulated a couple years sooner than the Nazis. We wouldn't see the establishment of rigid zones of occupation, for instance, but the presence of British, American and French soldiers in the country would be notable in political centres like Madrid and Barcelona. Also, the Brits would be sure to have the land surrounding Gibraltar to be occupied by their troops. Gibraltar itself would be returned to British hands. Thousands of Gibraltarian civilians who had been evacuated at the outbreak of the war would return to their homes. Relations between Gibraltarians and Spanish would be poor, with the former holding a grudge against their neighbours to the north. All traces of the former regime would be expunged from Spain in the following years. As for Franco and his political allies' future prospects, I wouldn't have high hopes for their continued well-being. If the Allied nations get to him first, they'd at least put Franco on trial and charge him before hanging him. On the other hand, if one of the militia groups got to him first, they'd probably just have him taken out, shot and strung up by the heels. 
like in real life, the balance of power in the world would fall to the two opposing superpowers. The Cold War would begin similarly in this alternate scenario. The Americans would be keen to set up friendly governments in Europe. Initiatives similar to the Marshall Plan would still be launched in order to rebuild the continent after such destructive conflict. Spain would require vast sums of money to rebuild its industries and would benefit in the coming years from these investments. Under the guidance of the West, Spain would transition into a liberal democracy, 30 years sooner than they did in real life. The main obstacle this new government would consistently face would be the power of leftist movements within the country, namely the communists. They would have rather high support within the country after the dissolving of the phalanges and would take much of their direction from Moscow. In future general elections, various Western intelligence services would hamper communists and other anti-system groups from gaining political power. Thanks to this CIA trickery, Spain wouldn't fall under the influence of the Soviets in the Cold War, and subsequent Spanish governments would nominally be led by conservative or centre-left parties. As a free market capitalist economy, I believe Spain would join Belgium, West Germany, France, Italy, Luxembourg and the Netherlands as founding members of the European Coal and Steel Community, the forerunner to the European Union. Overall, I think that if Spain joined the Axis, it wouldn't have an impact on the overall outcome of the war. I just can't realistically envision a scenario where Spain, with its devastated industry and economy, could ever be enough to counterbalance the might of the British Empire, the Soviet Union and the United States of America, as well as numerous other nations. Even with their favourable geographical position at the mouth of the Mediterranean, Denying Gibraltar to the Allies would not be the final nail in the coffin to their war effort as I initially thought when planning out this scenario. While the ultimate result of the war remains the same, Spain would transition to a democracy decades sooner than it did in real life, which it did only after Franco's death in 1975. Whether or not a decade of constant warfare, millions of civilian deaths and the near total collapse of Spanish society is a fair price to pay for these extra 30 years free of Francoism. I think that's a hard question to answer outright. Regardless, this is but one of many potential alternative history paths. As is always the way when playing with counterfactuals, we'll never actually know what would have happened had Canaris not been sent to convince Franco to join the Axis. And that's where I'll leave it for today's episode, in which I imagined what would have happened had Spain joined the Axis. This Is Not History is written, produced and narrated by me, Tom DeLaghi. Be sure to follow on Twitter at NotHistoryPod if you'd like to send ideas for potential episodes and feel free to message me if you disagree with anything I've theorised in this scenario. Thank you very much for listening and I hope to see you soon in the next episode of This Is Not History.